Good morning. My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service and the announcements. Once again, I see a few new faces, new to our current arrangement anyway, since October 4th. It's great to have you here with me in the sanctuary. I think every week I'm going to express my gratitude that you are flesh and blood and not, what is the camera made of? Plastic and metal. And even behind masks, I can see smiles and uh, human faces. So I appreciate that. And for those of you online, we're glad you're joining us in that way also, whether it's live or you're catching up with us after the fact. Last week, we started a new sermon series in the book of Ruth, and I want to give you a bit of a recap of the first chapter of Ruth. This story opens with an Israelite man named Elimelech, who leaves Bethlehem, his hometown, with his wife Naomi and their two sons to go to a land called Moab because there was famine in Judah and there was no food available in Bethlehem. So Elimelech's sons, while the family is in Moab, marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, which complicates things because Israel did not have a good relationship with Moab. In fact, the sins of the Moabites were so bad that God had said in Deuteronomy 23 that no Moabite person could enter the assembly of God down to the 10th generation. So what happens next in Moab is Elimelech and his two sons die. And Naomi hears that God has blessed Bethlehem again with food, and so she and her two daughters-in-law head home to Naomi's home anyhow. On the way there, she realizes that she has nothing to offer these two young women. She's lost everything, and so she says to them in a remarkable act of sacrifice, she says, you should go back to Moab. It's a better thing for you to do. Because in Israel, she anticipated that they would be despised, these two Moabite women. Orpah takes her up on the suggestion and goes home. But Ruth has this incredible conversion experience and says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And then she uses the name Yahweh for God, his covenant name, his personal name to indicate the change that's taken place in her. So what happens there is really an exchange of vows. And actually those words have influenced marriage vows down through the centuries up to today. And here's a funny story. Last Sunday, we had Jacob Vanderkoy up here. He was making his profession of faith, giving a testimony, joining the church as a member. Today, he was on drums. That's the progression we'd like to see in membership. You become a member, you help us with percussion the next Sunday. So that very afternoon, Jacob and his girlfriend Alyssa who is also part of our Courtright community, went out and got engaged. Is that not exciting? And so I applauded them through social media, and today I will say to them, well done with sermon application. Very impressive. We are so happy for you both. So Ruth chapter 2 opens with Naomi back in Bethlehem. 
and they're definitely not home free at this point. The town is stirred, we read at the end of chapter 1, when they see Naomi, but no one steps up to actually help them. And Naomi declares how bitter she is. In fact, she wants her name changed to Mara, which means bitter. She says the Lord has brought her back empty. And that's true at a number of different levels. First of all, their stomachs are empty, and that's going to be their priority. They need to eat. These two women, one older and one younger, are desperate for food. And that's where we pick up the story. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher ultimately, and you are a teacher like no other. Some of us are used to teachers standing up front, teachers at a distance, teachers who don't get us, teachers who are downright frustrating. But Holy Spirit, you are the teacher who comes alongside, you're the teacher who knows us, our every move, our every instinct, and you whisper your truth beautiful words of eternal life, words that we need like the parched land needs water. So would you come today and make what we call sometimes the ministry of the word, make it hum with your truth and your grace, Spirit. Change us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, whether it's a hard copy or on a screen, I'd encourage you to open it up to Ruth chapter 2, because I'm going to be referring to specific verses throughout the sermon, and it'll help you to have it open in front of you. So we're reading the whole of Ruth chapter 2. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the jars the men have filled with water. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. 
May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to the town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz till the barley and wheat harvests were finished. That would have been about two months that passed. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. So we're going to look at this passage this morning in three parts. First of all, the relatively short opening exchange between Ruth and Naomi, where we first hear about Boaz and then meet him. These three and a half verses illustrate God's providence. Secondly, we're going to take in the longer section with all that action and dialogue that happens in the fields between Ruth and Boaz, where we see God's righteousness and justice play out. And thirdly, we're going to see Ruth return to Naomi later that day in the evening. And at that point, we start to see God's redemption is coming, is around the corner. So God's providence, God's righteous justice, and God's redemption. Last week, I said that this story, the whole book of Ruth, was really about Naomi, in spite of the fact it's entitled Ruth. It's really about Naomi, who says she's empty, and then by the end of the story, we see God's redemption filling her up. And and that's still true. It's still about Naomi, but today we're going to catch sight of the third character in this drama, and that would be Boaz. And we're also going to see Ruth more active than ever before. Boaz is related to Naomi, and He's a prominent, rich man in the town of Bethlehem. But what we see going on here is actually Ruth initiating all the action. First of all, she suggests to Naomi that she should go to the field to beg for grain. And 
it's maybe helpful for us to remember that this story takes place in the time of the judges when there were evil men everywhere doing as they saw fit. And so what Ruth is proposing is something we really can't even relate to, the danger she would have faced simply by leaving the home where she and Naomi were staying. But one thing we do know is that the custom of the people at that time was something Ruth must have found out about from her mother-in-law. And, and that custom was that when a field was being harvested, that the harvesters should not be very thorough in gathering all the crops, but that they should leave some behind for the poor and the needy who would come and glean it. And as it turned out, Ruth was working in a field that belonged to Boaz. The NIV puts it like this, as it just so happened. One other translation says, by sheer luck, she came to the field of Boaz. I think I like that one better because it gets at the surprise that's going on here. It actually says in the Hebrew, a more literal translation is that Ruth's chance chanced upon. That's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? Her chance chanced upon that field. So it's double the luck. Now, why would it say that when the whole Bible assumes that God is behind everything, moving all of history and every individual story in the direction that he wills it to go? Well, I think the narrator here wants to draw our attention to the lucky things in our lives. Do you ever read movie reviews on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes before you watch a movie? I do that a lot because there's a lot of really bad movies and TV shows out there, and I want to get a sense of whether they're worth my time. Now, in these reviews, I've noticed that some people cannot abide lame coincidences that allow the plot of a movie or a TV show to unfold. Now, it's true. Some of those coincidences can be pretty far-fetched and even downright annoying. But you know what's even more annoying than a lame coincidence in a bad movie? It's watching that movie with a person who is constantly pointing out how lame all the coincidences are. I might have a person like that in my family. Life is full of seemingly random encounters, and you have to decide how you're going to interpret that. Are they really random? Or is God sovereign? Is God trustworthy behind the scenes of what's happening on the surface of your life? Does God rule the universe and is he working it out according to his purposes, though we really have a hard time figuring out what they are? I knew a guy, a real diehard Calvinist at my old church in Toronto who used to get a little crazy when people would wish him good luck especially when Christians did it. He'd turn 16 shades of purple, and he would start explaining in great detail the doctrine of predestination. He would say, look, there is no such thing as luck if you believe in the God of the Bible. So I took it upon myself, instead of saying goodbye to him whenever our conversations ended, I started to wish him good luck in the Lord. He found that harder to argue with. 
And I think that's exactly what's happening here in the story. It may seem lucky or unlucky, the things that happen to us, but really those coincidences, those developments in our lives, those plot twists are an invitation to us to pay attention to what may seem random. I'm willing to bet that most of us wouldn't be here in this room or watching online if we couldn't look back on our lives and see how God used coincidence to increase our faith, to draw us into a relationship with Him where we began to trust that He wanted the best for us, that He was bringing things into the place in our life where they needed to go. It can take years, it can even take decades to start to see what he was really up to, especially through the hard times. But we can choose to believe in his providence. And so just then, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem. He appears at exactly the right moment. And in this next section, there's so much going on, it's, it's really hard to wrap your head around. It's an ordinary day in the life of a wealthy farmer, it starts with Boaz greeting his workers, and the first word out of his mouth is the Lord. And we start to get an idea of his character. Can you imagine that in your workplace? Whether you're working in an office, physically with your coworkers right now, or whether you're online, can you imagine the day starting with your boss coming in saying, the Lord be with you, and everyone jumps up from behind their cubicle barrier and says, and also with you. Well, I think maybe there's a prompt in there for us to consider how we respond in the workplace on Monday morning to the conversation that happens, whether it's on Zoom or in person. So Boaz spots Ruth in the field, and he asks what becomes a key question for this whole story, the whole book of Ruth. He asks, who does that young woman belong to? Now, that might seem a strange question to us. We don't think of young women or young men belonging to anyone. But really, he's asking, what is her identity? Is she a Moabite, a foreigner, a widow? Is she damaged goods? Is she a homeless person? How is she defined? Who is she? And Ruth here is something of a paradox. Because there's... In Ruth, Boaz sees something that draws him to her. But really, that makes absolutely no sense. Ruth is from a bad family. She's a Moabite. She doesn't seem to have a father. She wouldn't have been considered respectable. She's poor. She's basically dumpster diving when he happens upon her. The point here is that Ruth is not the kind of person that you should be attracted to. But Boaz sees it differently. Where others see a reject, he sees a child of God. Where others see distortion and ruin, he sees beauty. And so Boaz asks his colleagues, his fellow workers, who she belongs to, and they tell him. And he goes up to her and he says in verse 8, he says, my daughter, listen to me. And so he's tender and kind in the way he approaches her from the outset, the way he speaks to her. And what he does for her is even more significant. He makes justice roll down for her. He offers her protection. He tells her to stay with his young women workers. 
There's safety in the company of that group. He orders his male workers to leave her alone. He says that she can drink his water and then he has his young men draw the water for her when that would have been completely astonishing to them that a Moabite woman who should have been serving everyone else, the men and the Israelite women, that a Moabite woman would be served by them would have upset every expectation. And then later, even more radically, Boaz invites her to eat with him, which we may not pick up on how dramatic that is. But inviting someone to eat with you in that culture meant identifying with them. It meant honoring them. And he also has his workers leave extra barley for her and then reminds them more than once that not only should they not harass her, but they should not even speak unkindly to her. In a way, here he was following Hebrew law. In Leviticus 23, it says that you should allow the poor, the foreigner, to glean in your fields. But he was also disregarding biblical precedents that would have justified mistreating a Moabite woman. One commentator I read this week said this is the first recorded anti-sexual harassment policy in history. And there's truth to that. And if we had more time this morning, I would get into some of the parallels we see in our society with the Me Too movement and male authority figures, men with power abusing women, Christian male leaders doing that too. We'll have time for that next week, I hope. So when we consider justice, and what Boaz is doing here is definitely justice. I think we sometimes get overwhelmed by how big the issues are in our society and in our world. But here we see justice played out in the everyday scenario of a workplace in which a person with power, and all of us have power of one kind or another. A person with power treats a vulnerable person with kindness and compassion and generosity. And when Ruth asks why, Boaz responds by blessing her in the name of the Lord, under whose wings she has come for refuge. And two things are happening as he says that. First of all, Ruth is being adopted into the family of Israel. Ruth, we're coming to see, is a true Israelite, one who practices the covenant righteousness that God calls his people to. And secondly, Boaz is embracing her, protecting her. Boaz himself is spreading his wings, reflecting God's love, covering her with his wings. And he's doing that against all the odds and expectations of his culture. Now, sometimes, especially in evangelical subcultures, you hear advice to young women that they should wait for their Boaz. You know, don't be in a rush to date some guy, your Boaz is out there, you need to wait. But it's a real stretch to get dating advice from this passage, I have to say. Not that that's bad advice necessarily, but it's worth noting, noticing here that Ruth is really not passive at all, that she is the most active one in this whole passage. Boaz does a lot of talking, and he's a good man, but Ruth is working, Ruth is enterprising, and that's where we end up in the final section of this chapter. Ruth heads home to Naomi, and we start to see God's plan for redemption unfolding for the two of them. So to recap how we've seen God 
present. First of all, it was God's providence and the sheer luck, lucky in the Lord, of ending up, of Ruth ending up in Boaz's field. And then we saw Boaz reflect God's justice to Ruth in how he treated her. And now finally we come to redemption, which is really the theme of this book. We see God's redemptive purposes in this amazing hall of food that Ruth brings home to Naomi. One ephah, which is around 40 to 50 pounds of grain. Sometimes Ruth is portrayed as this, this petite, uh, beautiful Middle Eastern woman, but she must have had some muscle to bring home 50 pounds of grain. And so they're, sta- they're saved from starvation. But even more, we see the redemption at work here in the significance of who Boaz is for Naomi. She identifies him as one of their family's kinsmen redeemers. And that was a relative who had a legal responsibility to step in and help out a family member who was in trouble, either who had lost property or lost their own freedom. And we're going to talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But what Naomi does next is she blesses Ruth. She blesses Boaz, who has come alongside Ruth and protected her. And in verse 20, we have to ask ourselves, if we want to interpret this verse, who is Naomi referring to when she says that he has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead? She could be referring to Boaz, or she could be referring to Yahweh, to God. Now, probably it's Boaz she's talking about, but I think it's actually helpful to have that distinction blurred because this hesed love that we talked about last week, that we sang about, that Justin referred to in his prayer earlier, this loving kindness that is the central attribute of who God is, Boaz has channeled that, has made that visible in the life of Ruth and Naomi. And the kindness is not only for them, the living, but also, in a kind of strange turn of phrase here, for the dead. In other words, it's for the whole family. There's something bigger at work here. It's a covenantal kindness. It's a larger kindness, this kindness that pursues, that we sang about, that will redeem the years that are lost, not just for Naomi and for Ruth, but for their people, that will restore the brokenhearted, that in a way brings the dead back to life. And so this redemption fills Naomi's empty stomach because it's edible. There's all this grain all of a sudden that they have to make bread from. But it hints at something much more. It hints at the coming of a new fullness for Naomi. Naomi who said she was empty. How can we apply this passage? Well, I don't, I don't know if any of you will go out and get engaged again this Sunday, but one of the things we always do when we read Scripture and, and try to see what it means for us on a Sunday morning is we ask, what difference does this make? I think it has a lot to say about work and our workplaces. First of all, the Bible tells us that work is not a curse. Sometimes we long to not have to work. Maybe we have a fantasy of retirement where we just kick up our heels and don't do anything all day long. But in fact, Scripture is clear that we were created in God's image to work. And work is profoundly good for us. It has dignity and it has value. And that's true of all work, not just certain kinds of work. Sometimes in the church world, you hear the most about being in ministry, 
Have you heard that? Ministry, in that case, refers to what I do or what Allison does. Church jobs, well, maybe missionaries too are considered ministry. But that is so far from what the Bible portrays about work for us. Every form of work, every job is a calling from God. From ancient occupations like farming to working with computers and modern technology. And of course, farming these days involves the most modern technology we have. He says, knowing there are farmers in the room. As one commentator puts it, and I love the way this is described, God, through us, makes, designs, organizes, beautifies, helps, leads, cultivates, cares, heals, empowers, informs, decorates, teaches, and loves. We are the wings of God. So whatever it is that you're good at, whatever it is that you're doing now, this raises questions for us as Christians because we have a very different view of work than perhaps what the world says about work. For those of you who are in school, what's your goal with the program you're in? Whether you're in high school or college or university, are you out to get knowledge, to develop skills for your own benefit? Or is your primary goal to leverage your life and your future job for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of the well-being of others? For those of you who are further along in your career, what are you doing with the ways that God has increased you? Are you using your experience and what you've gained in terms of knowledge, wealth, just to get nicer and nicer stuff for yourself? Or are you using that increased capacity to give more, to serve more? Are you being inventive in love is one of the ways we've described it over the past six months. Are you chasing the North American dream or are you chasing the gospel dream? Because you see, caring for the widow and the orphan is not a merit badge for some hyper-motivated super-Christians, but it's the mark of any and every true disciple. And we need the Holy Spirit to impress this on our hearts because we are naturally prone to wander, as we sang earlier, or even more, just to sit where we are and not do much. We need the Holy Spirit's vision for justice and redemption. And I believe this happens most of all where two or three are gathered together in the name of Christ. And I recall a Sunday not that long ago when I asked, standing right here, I asked who would be willing to step up so that we as a congregation could sponsor a Syrian refugee family to come to Guelph. And over 30 people raised their hands that day. And there was a meeting right after the service and a year later, the Aldegstani family were here in Guelph, and we were with them. I've heard stories in our neighborhood groups over the past six months of people reaching out across generational barriers to help older members of their group with technology challenges, and also across cultural barriers to help people improve their English, or just in difficult circumstances with food, with practical assistance, with prayer. In our neighborhood group, just this last week, someone challenged us to write letters to community living Guelph Wellington and to our local elected representatives about the closure of the ARC Industries program for adults with developmental delays, which has affected someone in our group. Her adult son is no longer able to go to that day program, which is 
been a real challenge for him and for her. And all of those dreams, those ideas, that action is the righteousness of God, is his justice in action. But here's the thing. We cannot end our reading of this passage with the stuff we need to do. We cannot picture ourselves in the place of Boaz. We must always find ourselves in the company of Ruth in this story. You are not the hero. Like Ruth in verse 10, we must always be asking, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? And we ask that as a prayer to God. God's love for us, like the concern Boaz shows for Ruth, is a mystery. The gospel is that we are more selfish, we are more disobedient than we ever imagined. But although that's true, at the same time, because of what Christ has done for you, you are more loved and accepted by God than you ever dared hope. We are not Boaz. We are not the Savior. We are the ones who come in need of redemption. In the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the abandoned mother, the dropout, the drug addict, I don't see someone I need to rescue. I see myself. I was the orphan. I was the prisoner. I was abandoned. I went prodigal. I was Ruth. And the same Jesus who loved me and pursued me with the kindness of God when I was a stranger and saved me can save others through me as I respond to his call. The cross of Christ is the answer. We and our own efforts are not. And so having experienced the redemption of Jesus, we live in that grace. We live with grateful hearts, with hearts that are full, and we respond in love and service to others as we ourselves have been loved and forgiven. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that your kindness is evident in this story of Boaz and Ruth in the fields, of Ruth gleaning and Boaz noticing her, caring for her. We thank you that you call us, first of all, to recognize who you are and to marvel at your grace, to ask that question, why have you shown us such favor? And then you ask us to follow you into the places you've prepared for us. You equip us, you've given us gifts, you've brought people into our lives alongside us so that we can dream dreams for our families, for our neighborhoods, for our city and well beyond it. Thank you, Jesus, for your redemption in our lives. Amen.